Good evening. Let's get weird. In 1962, the Teamsters president, uh, Jimmy Hoffa, he was sitting in a Nashville courtroom and Jimmy was on trial for accepting payoffs via a mob shell company uh, in exchange for calling off strike action. Now, this was Robert Kennedy's latest attempt to get Hoffa. And reporters described the atmosphere as being akin to, you know, big fight night feel. Uh, Hoffa had taken to making very lengthy speeches to crowds of journalists in which he accused the Kennedy brothers of using the FBI as their personal goon squad. He said that RFK wanted to turn America into a police state. He said that this trial was his chance to stop all that and that it was a decisive moment in the history of the American Republic. Jimmy was going to stop Hitler at Munich. Now, Hoffa's mob friends were very worried what else he might say and how far out of control this trial was likely to spin. And then one day, during a break in proceedings, a tall, slender young man in a rumpled suit walked into the courtroom, walked up to Hoffa, pulled out a pistol and fired it about an inch away from Jimmy's temple. Now, the gun turned out to be full of fairly harmless pellets and it jammed after the second or third shot anyway. Uh, the pellets just peppered Jimmy's arm and he was fine. Uh, Jimmy and his foster son, Chucky O'Brien, tackled the kid to the ground and went to work on him, beat the shit out of him. The kid's name turned out to be Warren Swanson and at the police station, the cops discovered that he was a paranoid schizophrenic who worked as a dishwasher. Now he'd been in and out of state facilities his entire adult life and the cops noted that he seemed confused and very forgetful. And a US marshal called Elmer Despain asked Swanson why he traveled all the way to Nashville. You know, did he have a grudge against Jimmy Hoffa or had someone paid him maybe we knew you know they knew about Jimmy's mob ties my Swanson said actually I don't have any particular opinion about Jimmy Hoffa and in fact Swanson went on to say that he hadn't even really been aware that Hoffa was on trial until about a month before the assassination attempt Swanson woke up in his apartment with a voice in his head telling him to find a gun and make his way to that Nashville courthouse and kill Hoffa. He said the voice repeated this instruction twice and then never spoke to him again. But I charged him. I charged him and so did Chuck, if you notice. I taught him well. You charge a guy, always charge a guy with a gun. With a knife, you run away. You run away from a knife. So you charge with a gun, with a knife, you run. That's right. On the night of June 27th, 1971, a black neo-Nazi and a paranoid schizophrenic called Jerome Johnson stepped off a Greyhound bus in New York City with a sense of purpose. Now, Johnson was an ex-pimp, a street hustler, a con artist, a rapist, a performer in mob-produced underground gay porn flicks, and an aspiring filmmaker. He was known to explain at length when he'd had a few, that he was God and that Adolf Hitler was his soulmate. He traveled from Cambridge, Massachusetts, carrying a wallet stuffed with money, a fake press pass, a 16 millimeter Bolex film camera, and a small monkey in a cage. 
an associate back in Cambridge, had said that he'd spoken to Johnson the week before and somewhat nervously, Johnson explained that he was going to New York to make a documentary about the effects of the Vietnam War on the American people. This associate hadn't found the story particularly convincing at the time. The next day, the 28th, Joe Colombo, who was the founder of the Italian-American Civil Rights League, attended a league rally at Columbus Circle. Now, Joe was, Joe was a very passionate advocate for the Italian-American community. Uh, he'd founded the league because he said that he was tired of seeing Italian-Americans portrayed as gangsters and hoodlums in the movies and the papers. He wanted to create a, a more positive image you know, of his people. And they'd already had quite a lot of success. You know, within a year, they had 45,000 members and chapters springing up across the country. And when Joe got word that Paramount had begun work on an adaptation of Mario Puzo's The Godfather, he extracted a promise from the producers that the terms mafia or Cosa Nostra would not appear in the screenplay, which, you know, demonstrates some considerable clout. And Joe's League was also capable of organizing rallies like the one that was to be held on June 28th at Columbus Circle. And these rallies could attract crowds in, you know, the tens of thousands. Joe had the money and the influence to do this kind of stuff because Joe was also the boss of the Columbo crime family, which is one of New York's famous five. He oversaw a vast criminal empire that was involved in everything from hijacking to extortion to heroin trafficking to contract killing. At this point in time, the Columbos were embroiled in a violent struggle with the upstart Gallo crew. This is Joe Gallo, or Crazy Joe. And Crazy Joe, as Henry Hill said in uh, Goodfellas, he decided to take on the bosses and start a war. And this was the second civil war the Columbos had fought since 1961. After the usual cycle of alliances and betrayals and reprisal killings, Gallo had been offered $1,000 by Joe Colombo on his release from prison to recommit to the 1963 peace agreement that had been intended to end all future conflict in the family. Gallo, in response, demanded $100,000 and he was refused. Colombo's work as a spokesman for the Italian-American community, the publicity that it attracted, along with this seeming inability that he had to keep his family in line, that had started to unsettle the heads of the other families and the Mafia Commission. Now, at the rally, Joe Colombo was working the crowd. You know, he was on his way to make a big speech. And an unidentified black woman called him over to where Jerome Johnson was filming proceedings with his 16mm Bolex camera. Johnson had managed to get to the front of the crowd in large part because of the fake press credentials that he was carrying. Now, this unidentified woman asked if Joe would mind posing for the camera with her. And she also asked if he could get the crowd to, you know, make space and give them some room. And as the crowd parted, Johnson pulled out a gun and put three rounds into Columbo. 
uh, Johnson was then in turn immediately killed by an unidentified shooter. And the police later found an NRA membership card in his belongings and certificates testifying to his outstanding marksmanship. One more. When Siran Sehan was tackled to the ground and hauled off to jail after he supposedly assassinated Bobby Kennedy, he also appeared confused and in a trance-like state. And when he gathered his wits, he expressed shock and horror at what he'd done. In fact, he said he'd, he'd actually liked RFK. In fact, Sirhan said, quote, I don't remember much about the shooting, sir. Did I do it? Well, yes, I am told I did it. I remember being at the Ambassador Hotel. I am drinking Tom Collins's. I got dizzy. I went back to my car so I could go home, but I was too drunk to drive. I thought I'd better find some coffee. The next thing I remember, I was being choked and a guy was twisting my knee. And a Harvard University professor called Daniel Brown spent a total of 60 hours examining Sirhan. Brown said, quote, Mr. Sahan did not act under his own volition and knowledge at the time of the assassination and is not responsible for actions coerced and or carried out by others. He was, Brown said, a true Manchurian candidate. Chuck Giancana, who was the son of Chicago outfit boss Sam Giancana, we've done a couple of episodes about him now. Chuck once wrote about something that his dad used to tell him. Sam used to say that the best way to set up an especially sensitive hit, you know, the murder of a boss or major political figure, for instance, it was to use what he described as a nutcase who is also an incredible sharpshooter. And the idea is that you pick somebody without any real connections to you and you very carefully groom them to go on what amounts to a suicide mission. The police won't find any connection between you and the murderer. And even if the patsy survives, nobody will believe anything that they say. And this method of carrying out a hit was, as Sam Giancana explained to his son, as old as the Sicilian hills. I had a dream about this place. episode 39 of ghost stories for the end of the world our story tonight begins in the final years of the austro-hungarian empire when a man called nicholas deek was born in 1905 in what today is romania deek eventually collected a phd in political and economic science um, in 1929 and he seemed from the get-go destined for greatness. Uh, he could speak Romanian, Hungarian, French, German, Russian, and English, and he served a spell at the Hungarian Trade Institute 
and London's overseas bank, then went to work for the League of Nations in their economics division, with a focus in particular on the Romanian economy. Now, his life before World War II is incredibly murky, and there are long-standing rumors that as early as 1930, he was working for Hungarian intelligence, and Romanian spooks had opened files on both Nicholas and his brother-in-law, uh, Tiberu Lengel, and they discovered that Deek had a financial interest in a Romanian company that imported and sold books and magazines. The Romanians suspected that it was a front for a Hungarian intelligence operation. However, at some point in either 1935 or 36, so the story goes, and there are a lot of stories around this period of time in Nicholas Deek's life, he is supposed to have switched sides to the Romanians, or he at least gave the appearance of switching sides. And he may have begun to work as an intelligence operative for them. And through his work as you know a financial consultant and banker, he also established some kind of connection with the British intelligence services during his travels around Europe. And in 1937, using Romanian credentials, he traveled to America for the first time and began to ingratiate himself into the Anglo-American business elite. Now, there are long-standing rumors that he was also involved in helping Jews uh, escaped Germany and countries on the Reich's hit list during this period. Uh, Deek was himself Jewish. A Romanian Secret Service report from 1938 suggested that Deek was still working for the Hungarians, although this report was based mostly off of rumors with you know very little evidence to corroborate any of these claims. They did managed to establish that he was in frequent secret correspondence with British and American businessmen based in Switzerland, London, and Paris. And acting on a tip-off from the secret service, the National Bank of Romania accused him of illicit foreign exchange trade. Um, additionally, they provided evidence that Deke and a partner called Jules Spiro were supplying the French troops in Indochina with what they vaguely described as materials, which was most likely weapons and fuel. The Hungarian government was also pursuing Deke at this point for unpaid tax. And to recover some consultancy fees, they paid him for work that he never did. Now, I'm unclear on the, you know, the specifics of all this, so I apologize. But basically, Deke was feeling the pressure and he was looking for a way out. By 1939, uh, with a Second World War now pretty much inevitable, and the you know, Romanian and Hungarian authorities chasing him, Deek left Europe for the United States and opened up a foreign exchange business called Deek and Company with assistance from an unknown number of anonymous American investors. And at some point, he also became a member of the American Association of University Professors and the American Economic Association. Now remember, Deek was a financial prodigy and a, a worldly raconteur. Uh, he was a possible spook with several years of experience as a double, perhaps triple agent in Eastern Europe who spoke six different languages fluently. So it's fair to say that, you know, 
he was a prize. And when he enlisted as a paratrooper in the US military in 1942, after they'd entered World War II, he was immediately assigned to the OSS. Deke was an obvious fit for an outfit like the OSS. You'll remember that, you know, we've, we've explained before how the US didn't have a formal intelligence apparatus as such, you know, in the interwar years. And instead, what they had was a class of industrialists and academics and diplomats and military brass and financiers who would travel the world on business and relay whatever they heard to the White House when they returned to the States. And these guys were all members of societies like the American Association of University Professors and the American Economic Association. And these would go on to serve as feeders for this nascent American security state. So although the vast majority of these men in this, you know, early OSS, although they considered themselves Anglo-American sophisticates, they could very often appear rather parochial and somewhat boorish to the blue bloods of the old world. And world War II gave the newly formed uh, OSS under the guidance of Britain's MI6 an opportunity to kind of widen their talent pool by bringing in people like Nicholas Deke, who moved freely between the old and new worlds of finance and politics and high society, and who also understood how the ruling classes in Europe thought and operated. And that he also probably brought a very long list of uh, valuable contacts with him was another bonus, you know. And this tendency, you know, to embrace the urbane and the cosmopolitan was and, you know, continues to be really the, the chief distinguishing characteristic uh, in recruitment methods between the, the OSS and then the CIA and an outfit like the FBI. So World War II was a great adventure for this Ivy League old boy network that made up the uh, the nucleus of the OSS. You know, your, uh, your Donovans, your Dulleses, your Angletons. And it also offered rapid advancement for sharp-minded networkers like Deke. And they all came to understand the potential power and wealth that could be generated by a formalized US foreign intelligence agency. Now, for his part, Deke spent the war running covert ops in Eastern Europe, Egypt, Thailand, um, and elsewhere. His closest friends at this time were William Casey and William Colby, uh, both future CIA directors. And James Angleton kind of, he kind of filled out the crew. Uh, Deke and Angleton had a similar affinity for high art and poetry, and they came to appreciate the usefulness of organized crime figures when planning covert missions. Deke developed a plan to parachute into the Balkans with a team of engineers to destroy key Axis oil supply lines. And in April of 1945, the US Army rolled into uh, Merkers in Germany, followed by a detachment of OSS officials and an American commission headed by Major Lionello Pereira. Now, Pereira was 
a New York banker who'd been tasked with tracking down gold stolen by the Nazis from wealthy Jews and central banks in territories occupied by the Reich during the war. And Pereira and his team found the stash of gold in a salt mine, and they worked with Deke and other OSS officials to send this gold to Switzerland and Sweden using the banking network that Deke and his uh, colleagues had established over the previous few years. Deke was then dispatched to Burma, and he was appointed the head of the research and analysis division there. Uh, here is where he led scout teams that prowled the jungle. Uh, they would recruit local guerrilla fighters, they would set up intelligence outposts, and they would hunt for Japanese officers to assassinate or abduct and interrogate. And in 1945, he accepted the sword of surrender from a Japanese officer and kept it as a souvenir, you know, for the rest of his life. After the war, Deke joined the State Department and he was assigned to Hanoi. Now, I say he joined the State Department, but obviously we know he was still OSS. Uh, he just had a different job title. And this was when Vietnam was still called French Indochina. And Deke, just like he had back in the 30s, acted as a liaison to the French occupying forces and consulted on matters of finance. And in time, he came to oversee a covert arms trafficking operation that funneled weapons to the French. And he wrote memos back to the US recommending that American advisors be assigned to supervise French counterinsurgency efforts against Ho Chi Minh's resistance movement. So you could say... Uh, not to sound too glib, but, you know, Deke was one of the early adopters of the Vietnam War. Uh, he eventually returned to the US in 1946, and the official story has it that he set up a flower import business that was based in Hawaii, which he then transformed into a brokerage and foreign exchange outfit. And significantly, Deke and co merged with Pereira Inc., uh, which was his wartime comrades firm and business boomed, you know. Uh, I won't bore you with the technicalities, but what's especially important to keep in mind are the following two points, which I just, I clipped from a foreign exchange market 101. Quote, the foreign exchange market is unique because of the following characteristics. It's huge trading volume representing the largest asset class in the world leading to high liquidity and its geographical dispersion. You also have insider knowledge about who is moving money where, um, allowing you to keep tabs on foreign enemies and what they might be thinking based on where they're shuffling their cash. So inevitably, when it came time to create the CIA, financiers like Deke were ideally placed to offer their businesses as CIA fronts, essentially, and their skills as you know economics whizzes and frankly as money launderers as well. And the CIA, in turn, funneled investment into Deke's firm to help it expand the scope of its activities and by extension the CIA's. And from this, Deke was able to tap into new markets. Um, one major early scheme that he was involved in was financing the Iranian coup in 1953. At Alan Dulles's request, he personally oversaw the transfer of $1 million sent from the CIA via Deke and co branches in Lebanon 
and Beirut to Mohammad Mossadegh's enemies inside Iran. And after this, and again, uh, Alan Dulles's request, Deek also set up funding channels to pay for the overthrow of the government in Guatemala. Uh, Frank Weisner, who was another founding father of US intelligence and a friend of Deek's, approached him for help with financing anti-Soviet activity in Romania, uh, such as the, uh, the National Resistance Movement. And after this, Deek helped plan and finance the capture and assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. And due to all this, you know, his star continued to rise. And in 1957, Deke Pereira opened a bank in Switzerland, which that, of course, you know, that should get your spook antenna perking. There's a Time article actually from June of 1964, and it's one that describes him as the James Bond of money. And it gives some idea of how quickly and massively Deke Pereira grew and the the dizzying array of financial activity that it was involved in. Quote, Last week, lines of tourists bought up pounds, francs, and yen from Deeks Pereira Co., busiest currency exchange in the US, and only one of Deeks' skein of 20 currency stores. The tourist trade is a small part of Deeks' business. His plumpest profits come from the active shufflings of currencies in crisis. Wherever countries are not stable, says Deek, their currencies are heavily traded. Currency speculators and companies operating in inflation-ridden countries such as Brazil or Italy try to conserve the value of their cash by buying or selling forward contracts for funds, similar to commodities futures. A speculator who saw Brazilian currency short a year ago could have doubled his money. Deke trades in the contracts, gambling that fiscal and political changes will work his way. He also collects rents for owners of foreign properties. He buys up blocked accounts at bargain prices or, on occasion, the inheritance of an heir who has trouble getting his money out of a foreign country. In such cases, Deke is in effect betting that he can get the money unfrozen later or turn a profit by using the funds inside the country. He has the right connections for it. Occasionally, governments buy and sell their own currencies through DEEK, creating an artificial demand that boosts the exchange rate and bombs national pride. Constantly operating on the fringes of politics, DEEK often gets subtle warnings of impending events. In 1962, millions of dollars worth of Indian rupees that DEEK held were suddenly scooped up in Hong Kong. Beru and Kuwait. They were purchased by agents of the Red Chinese who used the rupees for folding money when they invaded India soon after. That kind of gives you an idea of just how much power and influence, you know, Nicholas Deke wielded. Uh, you know, currency traders like him especially are very useful to the CIA. Um, and of course, this part about China and India is especially intriguing because Deke was actually able to use what he gleaned about this. He realized, oh, the, the Chinese are buying these Indian rupees because they must be planning to go into the country. And he used this to tip off the CIA about an, the impending invasion. So by keeping an eye on market activity like this, Deke would be able time and again to provide up to the minute information to his colleagues at Langley and his overseas offices and bank branches became little CIA substations in their own right, really. They were staffed with as many spooks as they were bankers and speculators. And for an idea of 
how small the world is at this level, consider that the foreign exchange part of Deke Pereira would eventually be sold to Thomas Cook. Thomas Cook would go on to diversify into tech, you know, setting up a computer center in Princeton. Intrigued, you know, by this move, none other than KGB, MI6, and Mossad agent, triple agent, Robert Maxwell, would become a major shareholder in that company as part of his own efforts to expand his tech interests. And incidentally, this is around the same time that Maxwell was also acting as a, a kind of middleman and a kind of salesman for the backdoored Promise software. And in a neat bit of historical irony, really, Promise was stolen, at least you know, in part, with an eye towards automating the kind of economic fortune telling that the CIA had previously relied on people like Nicholas Deke for. What a tangled web, eh? So for a time, it was good. It was good for Deke. The money rolled in. The agency continued to use Deke Pereira as a front for financing its its covert activities. The company diversified further. You know, it opened subsidiaries like Deke Pereira Wall Street and Deke Pereira International Banking. And eventually, it became the largest non-bank foreign exchange and precious metals operation in the United States, one of the biggest in the world as well. Uh, By the start of the 1980s, Deke's personal fortune would be pegged at somewhere between $400 and $600 million. The Time magazine article that I quoted, it is for all intents and purposes a fluff piece, you know, on a businessman at the top of his game what James Elroy might have called shook and jive hagiography, you know, but it does close on a very odd note. And it's one that's supposed to sound quite jocular, but which, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, seems laden with some pretty ominous undertones. And it says, quote, Deke once sat atop a bundle of old Israeli pounds that had been called in by Israel and were thought to be worthless. He managed to dispose of them in, of all places, Arab Lebanon. What happened to the money after it reached Beirut? In Deke's business, one does not ask such questions. So throughout the 1970s, Deke became something of a media darling and a hit on the public speaking circuit. Uh, He would appear at investment conferences and he wrote articles in magazines like Reason. He mixed the kind of cold-eyed Randian philosophy with a survival of the fittest style social and economic outlook that was perfectly in lockstep with the emerging uh, Reaganite revolution. He said that inflation was caused by an excess of welfare claimants and that it was an affront to democracy that welfare claimants were allowed to vote. He said South Africa under apartheid was a model society, that it was an ideal place for the savvy investor to make their fortune. And he urged people to invest in gold and uh, even started minting his own line of gold coins. By the early 70s, though, the... What, we, what we've been calling the deep political system in the US, it was undergoing another uh, change. 
and a lot of details about various covert ops has started to leak to the press. The assassinations, the mind control program, surveillance, wiretapping, and other illegal activity by the FBI and the CIA. And it culminated in 1975 with the establishment of the US Senate Select Committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities. Uh, these were chaired by Senator Frank Church and became known as the Church Committee hearings. And they were intended to be a wide-ranging investigation into the CIA's involvement in everything from heroin smuggling in the Golden Triangle to fomenting coups abroad to MKUltra and beyond. And although they had the appearance of being, you know, a balls-to-the-wall, democratically enacted expose, of CIA activity, much of what the committee uncovered was still kept quiet at the agency's request. And as Victor Marchetti, who was the co-author of the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, explained in 1978, quote, a classic example of a limited hangout is how the CIA has handled and manipulated the church committee's investigation of two years ago. The committee learned nothing more about the assassinations of foreign leaders, illicit drug programs, or the penetration of the news media than the CIA allowed it to discover. You see, the CIA had calculated that for everyone to get back to business, it was important to create at least the illusion of change at Langley. Uh, so a few insiders, guys who were on the outs for one reason or another, they were carefully selected to be offered up as sacrifices or else made a figure of scrutiny as a way of disciplining them and distracting the press and the public from the agency's misdeeds. One of these insiders who was selected to be offered up was Nicholas Deke, whose high profile had begun to make the agency quite nervous. Uh, they fed the church committee information about Deep Pereira's role in the Lockheed bribery scandal, which had been a long-running system of payoffs and kickbacks that Lockheed had given to a number of governments around the world to win uh, very lucrative defense contracts. And it emerged that Deke's Hong Kong branch had been funneling millions of dollars on behalf of Lockheed and Langley to Yoshio Kodama. Kodama was a key figure in post-war Japanese uh, deep politics. He was what they call a kurumaku or fixer. He was an ultra-nationalist Yakuza Don and a member of the Black Ocean Society and he'd served as an admiral in the Navy during World War II. And thereafter, he dodged war crimes charges and then took control of a fucking massive drug trafficking and arms smuggling operation while working as a prized asset for the CIA. And he became, um, yeah, a, a very powerful middleman in Japanese politics. So although Deke never faced any formal charges for his role in the scandal, he understood that that wasn't really the point. The real message from the CIA was that Deke was running out of friends and favors, and he could either continue being a celebrity, a celebrity entrepreneur, or he could resubmerge and remember who he really worked for. Now, more broadly, as we've previously discussed in the Howard Hughes and Chicago Outfit episodes, the 1970s uh, represents a period of major change inside the CIA. Um, and, you know, the American deep-lying 
political system. Uh, the agency was increasingly realizing that the old way of doing things was drawing to an end. It'd soon be finished. And the church committee hearings and the House Select Committee on Assassinations, while they'd been largely toothless affairs, you know, glorified limited hangouts, um, and they were ultimately compromised and infiltrated by Langley, for a brief moment, it really had seemed like the future of the organization might be in jeopardy. And things had briefly gotten out of control, basically. You had Vietnam, uh, Watergate, and then the other scandals that came out all kind of profoundly shook them. And if only for a moment, some of them were convinced that this was it. it. It was the end for the CIA. So they were relieved to find that George Bush was being brought back from China to become the new you know, director of the agency. And Bush becoming the new director is outside the scope of tonight's episode, but we'll be talking about it in more depth um, in episodes to come because it really is a, a crucial moment in the evolution of uh, America's, you know, uh, deep political system. But for now, what we need to know is that this was the last step, you know, like the last piece falling into place in a kind of slow motion coup that began with the JFK assassination back in 1963. To really get into it, we, we'd we have to really go deep and we will be doing that uh, shortly. But it's for, for now, it's real la-le-lu-le-lo uh, shit. So we won't go off on it too much here. Um, but in short, 13 years before he became president, Bush had already become the most powerful um, political actor in the US probably by getting himself appointed uh, the CIA director. It was a consolidation. Now there's something about um, Deke's conduct, Nicholas Deke's conduct in the late 70s and early 80s that puts me in mind of um, Ace Rothstein in Casino. Uh, Deke had been warned to lower his profile and limit his exposure. And instead, he continued minting his coins, appearing on talk shows and collecting huge fees, giving speeches about fiscal policy and the virtues of apartheid, you know. And it's possible that the election of Reagan had given Deke reason to think that he would now be protected to some degree, you know, that whatever this rift was that had developed between him and the agency, it would be healed um, because Reagan had appointed his campaign manager and Deke's old OSS buddy, William Casey, to head the CIA. Casey was one of the, the founding fathers of US intelligence. He was one of that old boy's network. And in fact, commentators and pundits described uh, his appointment as a return to the swashbuckling days of the early CIA. Uh, the departing director of intelligence, Bush had moved on by this point, uh, Stansfield Turner. He called it the resurrection of Wild Bill Donovan. And they weren't entirely wrong. I mean, as we'll see in the final series of our, you know, our American exploration, the 1980s were a kind of high tide of blood-soaked corruption for the CIA. Uh, you had Iran-Contra, BCCI, uh, the partnership with the Mujahideen and more. Um, that would all unfold over the next 10 years. But more importantly for Deke, uh, Casey coming in 
really did reassure him that uh, his his luck might be changing. Uh, as recently as 1975, Casey had made a toast at a banquet in Deke's honor, in which he said that Deke was, uh, as he described, an old and trusted friend. But the problem was that in this new, diffuse, fractal, high-tech and psychedelic world of spycraft that was dawning with the 1980s, guys like Nicholas Deke were becoming embarrassing relics. You know, uh, Casey was working for Reagan now, and he was also working for George Bush, who'd first overseen that crucial period of transition in the mid-70s, and then had had himself slotted in as Reagan's vice president. Uh, Bush gave his cousin at the Treasury Department, John Walker, the okay to go after Deke Pereira and get rid of the old man. So in 1983, Walker found an informant who revealed that Deke Pereira had become an integral part of a vast money laundering operation that was connected to dozens of high-ranking bosses in various uh, Colombian cartels and other crime syndicates in Panama, Colombia, Argentina, Nicaragua, South Africa, and El Salvador. Um, tens of millions of dollars in drug money had been washed through deep Pereira branches for years. Um, and when news of the Pendin Justice Department investigation broke, Deke refused to testify in Washington. And in November of 1984, when he finally appeared before the investigating committee and responded to questions with sarcasm and condescension, uh, the distance between him and his sponsors at Langley couldn't have been uh, more stark. When the footage of the hearings appeared on the news, panicked customers and investors rushed to withdraw their deposits. Deke and company and two subsidiaries, Deke Pereira Wall Street and the Deke Pereira International Banking Corporation, they filed for Chapter 11 to protect themselves from creditors. And in the process, countless gangsters and uh, arms traffickers and terrorist financiers and God knows who else lost uh, their money. People all around the world, very dark and dangerous people. And ominous rumors churned through the underground that Deke was a marked man and that contracts had been issued uh, and that bounties had been offered. And Deke's son, Leslie, told the New York Times, quote, the damage we have suffered from maliciousness in that report to a very great extent caused the downfall of a very fine firm and the damage to a very fine man, my dad. And on top of this, as the New York Times also reported, quote, the Deke problem is not just a liquidity crisis brought on by anxious depositors. Documents in bankruptcy court show the holding company's assets at $62.2 million and liabilities at $95 million. Deposits, which bore high interest rates, were invested in the precious metals and foreign exchange subsidiaries, which did not yield a high return, Mr. Deke said. The way we funded that hole was that we increased our borrowings. Deke Pereira Wall Street and the Deke Pereira International Banking Corporation are not foreign exchange units, but rather operated somewhat like banks. They accepted deposits from foreigners, paid interest, and transferred funds elsewhere in the world. The former catered mostly to companies, the latter to individuals. They did not make loans, and they accepted money only from foreigners, so they were not chartered as banks. In effect, they borrowed from foreigners to finance other subsidiaries in Deke and company. 
So basically what that's saying is that the entire Deke empire had functioned in large part on the goodwill of the CIA and its associates and a lot of very nifty plate spinning on the part of Nicholas Deke and his lieutenants. All the Reagan Justice Department had to do was publicly say it had a mere interest in investigating its activities and the ensuing panic was enough to bring everything crashing down. And because Deke had been robbing Peter to pay Paul for years at this point, when it did crash down, he was left owing a considerable amount of money to some very, very dangerous people. So Deke spent the rest of 84 and much of 1985 trying to kind of repair old relationships and assuring creditors that, you know, everything was in hand because what else was he going to do? Um, and he told them that, you know, they'd have their money back soon. This was just a, a bit of turbulence that they'd hit. And he set about trying to restructure the firm. And eventually he sold Deke and Co. to a Singaporean lawyer called Chan Cher Boone for $58 million. Now, Boone represented a number of anonymous investors who were said to have had a keen interest in the Foreign Commerce Bank, which was the Swiss unit of the Deke Empire. Uh, they'd had this interest in it for a number of years. So again, make of that what you will. Uh, Deke by all accounts, was exhausted and haunted uh, during this period of time. Uh, he divided his life between his Scarsdale mansion and the Deke New York office at 29 uh, Broadway. All of his energies now were devoted to trying to find a way out of the hole that he was in. And one by one, his old friends closed the door on him and he can't have been unaware of these rumors that were circulating about possible reprisals from extremely pissed off and powerful underworld figures who felt that he'd burn them or who were concerned that he may be about to cut a deal to save his own skin. The head of Deke Pereira's Canadian operation at the time was a guy called Akadi Kulman, and he's described this period as being one of uncharacteristic uh, bitterness for Deke. Um, Deke simply couldn't understand who he'd upset enough to bring the US Department of Justice down on his head. You know, he'd always had some measure of protection from this kind of thing. And Kuhlman later said that Deke had refused to accept that times had changed. You know, he, he'd simply failed to adapt to what the CIA required from its business assets in a new emerging uh, financial paradigm. So while Deke continued to ruminate, um, you know, nursing whiskey and brandy into the wee hours, brooding, trying to figure out how he might fix this mess that he was in, he didn't realize that he was already out of time.
Early in the morning, on November 19th, 1985, a woman dressed in thrift store clothes with disheveled hair shuffled into the reception at 29 Broadway. Her name was Lois Lang. Uh, she'd been born in 1941, and until the early 70s, uh, she'd lived an idyllic American life, really. She was voted homecoming queen in high school, and she'd also been a star athlete. Uh, she graduated from the University of Illinois with honors, and by the late 1960s, she was married and had a job as a tennis and fencing coach at the University of California, Santa Barbara. To anybody looking on, Lois Lang was living the dream. But Lois started to encounter some problems around 1969, 1970, because she began to suspect that the people around her had become fakes. Uh, this is what she called them, fakes. She started to suspect that they were decoys sent by a sinister government agency to poison her mind. And she thought that someone had taken control of her husband and was puppeteering him. She became convinced that uh, she was being followed everywhere that she went and that her relatives were really strangers who were pretending to be, you know, her cousin, her auntie, and so on. Uh, she suspected that she was living in an elaborately orchestrated hoax and her entire life was being manipulated by dark and invisible forces, you know, classic paranoia. And her mind, under the strain of this, it began to unravel. And in fact, at her mother's funeral, she had what for all intents and purposes sounds like a psychotic breakdown and had to be escorted out of the funeral parlor when she started screaming that the woman in the open casket wasn't her real mother. And when her contract came up for renewal at the university, her supervisors were spooked enough at this point that they declined to sign her on for another year. So this part of her story is especially bleak because while the details of Lois Lang's life are quite hard to come by, it does seem that for all intents and purposes, she fell through the cracks in society as she went insane. Um, her husband filed for divorce and disappeared. And in her account of what happened next, a man who claimed to be her husband's business partner, possibly one of these decoys she suspected, offered to take care of her. And according to Lang, she was set up with an apartment in Mountain View, California. There, she lived on a kind of bursary that was provided by a group of mysterious people that she referred to only as friends. And she told psychiatrists that uh, they took her to the shooting range and they paid for her to have flying lessons. And curiously, she also claims they took her to New York in 1971 and showed her the Art Deco skyscraper at 29 Broadway, where Nicholas Deke worked. And she was in and out of psychiatric facilities throughout this period of time. And in 1975, police responded to a call of a woman in distress at a motel, and they found Lang curled up naked in one of the rooms. And she was then sent to Santa Clara Medical Center, and she was placed in the care of Dr. Frederick Melgis. Dr. Melgis was a lead researcher at Stanford uh, University. Uh, he'd written a detailed report in the 1960s analyzing how cannabis-induced temporal disintegration, which is a breakdown in sequential thought 
Um, and he was primarily interested in the way psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia could affect a mentally ill person's concepts of time. Stanford University, of course, was one of many places where the CIA uh, financed MKUltra research. And alongside Leo Hollister, Melgis conducted multiple experiments inducing what they called controlled schizophrenia. Um, and they did this in test subjects by dosing them with high-grade LSD um, from United Press International. Quote, Doctors Frederick T. Melgis, Jared R. Tinklenberg, Leo E. Hollister, and Hemp K. Gillespie experimented at Stanford University, Palo Alto, California. Rather than hippies and other dropout marijuana smokers, they used graduate students, goal directed toward earning doctorates and beginning careers in sciences. Marijuana was swallowed as extracts rather than smoked to permit precise control of dosages. Hypnosis and meditation can also intensify the present by making both past and future remote, they said in their report to the American Medical Association. So can intoxication with mescaline and LSD. Now, Leo Hollister uh, was the guy who introduced Ken Casey and the Merry Pranksters to LSD. Um, Melgis, for his part, had also helped the military create their own mutant hallucinogenic, which they called BZ. What I'd recommend here is... If you go check out our first uh, Psychedelic Gladio episode for more information on BC. But put simply, if the LSD that was synthesized by CIA-funded scientists of the 1960s was like a gunshot to the psyche, BZ was, you know, a hydrogen bomb. The most horrific parts of, you know, Jacob's Ladder or something. Uh, many people who the chemical was tested on were psychologically destroyed forever you know just trapped in some hellish internal space so here are some other strange connections in the sad story of lois lang in the 1960s when she was getting her master's degree in physical fitness from the university of illinois she studied under thomas curtin uh, curtin is known as the father of physical fitness he was credited with boosting the fitness standards of American GIs in World War II. Uh, he favored a, a two-pronged approach that focused on both the body and the mind. On the same campus, at the same time as Lang was there, one Dr. Carl Pfeiffer was researching the effects of hallucinogenic drugs on contract for the CIA under MKUltra. And again, as with uh, Melgis and Hollister, uh, Pfeiffer also preferred to use graduate students who were goal-directed. Um, he was also attempting to trigger a controllable form of schizophrenia by dosing test subjects with acid and then administering high-strength amphetamines to induce and prolong the twilight zone or limbo state that we've discussed before. And then what Pfeiffer would do is deliberately inflict a nightmarish trip on these human guinea pigs of his. One of the people roped in to his experiments was Whitey Bulger. Bulger would suffer from flashbacks and night terrors uh, for the rest of his life. And his associates said that he was much more violent after uh, his MKUltra experience. Another one of Pfeiffer's patients, uh, Feral Kirk, 
was given a cocktail of LSD, mescaline, speed, cocaine, and a couple of other unknown substances. And he had a complete psychotic breakdown. First, he tried to self-immolate, and then he tried to bite his own arm off. So to bring it back to Lois Lang, we have all these um, strange connections. They, you know, could just be coincidental, who knows. But investigators after the fact were confronted with a lot of murkiness, really. Um, so much of her life is actually very difficult to pin down. Um, they're not entirely sure if she did actually have a husband, for example. He seems to have completely disappeared off the face of the earth. This mysterious business partner of his as well, they were never able to track him down. And although they could verify that she had indeed lived in an apartment in Mountain View, it was unclear who was paying the bills since she'd lost her job before moving there. And I should probably also mention that Mountain View was a Lockheed Company town, while Moffat Naval Base and NASA's Ames Research Center uh, were also there. So after she was released from uh, Melgis's care, she worked for a time as a card dealer at a mafia casino in Nevada, and then she got busted with a gun in a federal courthouse after she demanded to see one Chief Justice Warren Berger. Another one of those strange connections that seemed to haunt Lois Lang appears here because Berger had been implicated in an MKUltra controversy himself. And this story came out in 1975 as part of the Church Committee revelations. Uh, this is from the New York Times, September 1975. Quote, the New York State Attorney General's office agreed to cover up the federal government's involvement in a death in an army-sponsored drug experiment in Manhattan after the federal government agreed to pay half of an $18,000 settlement to the widow previously secret documents reveal. Three letters among the documents indicate that one of the government officials involved in working out the final details of the arrangement with New York was Warren E. Berger, now Chief Justice, who was then an Assistant Attorney General. The victim of these MKUltra experiments in this instance was a guy called Harold Blow, who was a tennis pro who checked into the New York State Psychiatric Institute in 1952 after his impending divorce and his faltering uh, career had left him suicidally depressed. And what he didn't know was that the hospital had worked out a secret deal with the CIA and the military in which random patients would be selected for use as test subjects uh, for new top secret chemical warfare compounds. Blauer was started on a, a relatively small dose of mescaline and over time, the strength was increased before other drugs were gradually added. Eventually, he was being given daily doses of a cocktail made up of mescaline, MDA, DMA, and MDPEA. Uh, these drugs, in combination, triggered epileptic seizures, fits of projectile vomiting, tremors, hallucinations, and severe dehydration. The final dose of drugs that he received was 450 milligrams of MDA. He immediately suffered a seizure, went into cardiac arrest, and died. And although his family were awarded the 18 grand in 1975, it would take another 12 years of 
fighting the government before it finally paid out, um, at which point the sum had been increased to $800,000. So we have a former attorney general who helped cover this up in 52 and 53. Then 20-odd years later, when the story finally leaks and his involvement is exposed, uh, just as the CIA is feeling the pressure from all sides, Lois Lang, a mentally ill woman who has spent much of her adult life surrounded by MKUltra-connected psychiatrists and scientists, suddenly surfaces in a courthouse demanding to speak to Warren Berger and carrying a loaded gun. That is pretty strange, isn't it? So Lang bounced around a few more psychiatric facilities and she spent time in and out of jail. She was busted for a number of petty crimes during this period, uh, shoplifting, drug possession, so on and so forth. She reappeared on the University of Washington campus in Seattle and she was fully harmless at this point uh, and became known to the students as a harmless enough eccentric who wore a Robin Hood style uh, green cap. And although she was of no fixed address and she hadn't had a job in a while, the few people who got to know her a little bit during this time say that she always seemed to have money. Uh, when she was arrested in the early 80s, the cops found $800 in crisp folded bills on her. And you might be wondering why Lang had resurfaced on the University of Washington campus. And while there's nothing definitive, it's pretty interesting that at this time, the university employed a professor called Dr. Donald Dudley. Dudley was a psychiatrist who claimed to have worked, as he put it, on contracts for the CIA and the US military in the 60s and the 70s. And for what it's worth, Dudley was sued by the parents of an autistic man in the 1990s. And this is from a 2001 Seattle Times article, quote, Stephen Drummond's parents filed the lawsuit in 1998 contending that Dudley used drugs and hypnotic suggestion in an effort to recruit and train killers from among his patients. The parents claim that Stephen will never be able to work or live on his own because of Dudley's negligence. In October 1990, Dudley injected Drummond with sodium amytal, a powerful sedative. Dudley's file said he intended to erase part of Drummond's brain and implant new behavioral characteristics. By February of 1992, Drummond sat in his room all day talking to himself and required constant care. When Jeannie Drummond confronted Dudley about her son's treatment in November 1992, he told her he was going to take over hospitals, police forces, and schools, and that she was fortunate he wanted her son to be one of his trained soldiers, her attorney said. And that's not all either. Uh, in 93, Dudley was arrested by police after another patient of his, uh, an unnamed suicidal 15-year-old boy, was found wandering around a hotel, uh, twirling a gun in what the cops described as a fugue state. And again, Seattle Times, this time 1993. Quote, a prominent psychiatrist and former longtime professor at the University of Washington is being investigated by Bellevue police after officers reportedly found an arsenal of guns in the hotel room where he was treating the 15-year-old patient. 
Dr. Donald Dudley of Yarrow Point was cited for obstructing justice when he failed to put his hands over his head when officers ordered him from his room at the Bellevue Hilton early Saturday morning, according to Police Lieutenant Jack McDonald. Dudley, 56, did not return phone calls. According to a police report, this is what transpired. Dudley and the youth checked into a single room at the Hilton Friday night. Finding an adjoining room unoccupied, they took that as well. Shortly after 1am, the boy went downstairs and told the clerk he and the doctor would be going for target practice at a firing range. Then he went upstairs and returned, waving a 44 Magnum semi-automatic pistol at the clerk. The boy appeared to be intoxicated and confused, a clerk told police. And he said, get out of here or I'll drop you. The clerk fled to a back room. So at the time of that article as well, there were a further five outstanding complaints against Dudley that the University of Washington was still looking into and was refusing to divulge uh, any details about. And after he died in the early 2000s, the parents of uh, Stephen Drummond were awarded $2.1 million in damages by Dudley's estate. So this brings us back to 29 Broadway, 1985. Lois Lang had woken up the month before in October in Washington, and she caught a Greyhound bus to Miami. And witnesses later said that she met with two Argentinian mobsters in a dive hotel. What she discussed with them, how she knew them, we don't know. Uh, Deke's loyal lieutenant, Arcadi Kuhlman, said that his private investigators dug this tidbit up a few years later. And it's noteworthy that Deke had considerable interests in Argentina. And Argentina was, of course, a mecca for figures involved in organized crime, the fascist underground, and spooks during the Cold War. Deke knew almost everybody who was worth knowing. Uh, he was on first name terms with Sicilian mafiosi, secret agents, Pinochet's arm dealers, and morbicides. The collapse of his empire, just to repeat, had made him a lot of enemies in this very strange underworld. Many of them had lost everything when Deke filed for bankruptcy. After Lois met with the two mysterious Argentinians, she then went and bought a 38 caliber pistol in Orlando. It's unknown where she got the money uh, from for either her travel fare or her gun. She caught one final bus to New York and stepped into the Art Deco skyscraper at 29 Broadway on November 18th. Um, she took the elevator up to the 22nd floor and approached Nicholas Deke's secretary, Francis Lauder, and she asked to speak to the big man. Lauder told her that Deke hadn't yet arrived at the office and Lang angrily stormed out. Uh, she nursed a cup of coffee, according to witnesses, in a cafe across the street for two hours. She sat there staring through the window at the skyscraper at 29 Broadway. Once Deke's limo pulled up and he climbed out, she got up and hurried back across the road and once again uh, got in the elevator and went up to the 22nd floor. Again, she told Lauder that she wanted to talk to Deke and before Lauder could reply, Lang pulled her piece and shot Lauder in the face uh, while a couple of, I imagine, stunned staff just watched this in shock and horror. Um, Lauder died instantly. Deke then stepped out of his office to see what was going on 
and upon seeing him, according to witnesses, all traces of Lang's agitation disappeared. And instead, her face took on a calm, almost dreamy expression. Uh, she paused, took a moment, and as she moved to adopt a kind of marksman-like shooter's stance, Deke rushed her and tried to wrestle the gun away. And the pair of them locked together in this strange waltz and Lang fired off around next to Deke's head. And this made him break the clinch. And this was just enough time for Lang to fire again into his chest. And in a low monotone, Lang said, now you've got yours. And then she took out a small disposable camera from her rucksack and carefully snapped some pictures of his body then dragged him into his office and shut the door. Uh, when she stepped outside again, three cops were now on the scene and they were pointing their guns at her. And on seeing them, one witness said that something in her seemed to break. It was as if she was coming out of a trance. And as the cops wrestled her to the floor, she burst into hysterical, racking sobs and begged them not to hurt her. She screamed, he told me I could carry the gun. In the aftermath, Lang was immediately written off as a lone nut. Uh, she claimed she worked for powerful people. She said she was a disgruntled customer of the bank, although there was no evidence that she'd ever had an account there. And even the prosecutors who put her away thought that the case was odd and that the lone nut theory didn't really make much sense. But, you know, in a city with a murder rate as high as New York's, they were happy for an easy open and shut clearance. Arkady Kuhlman set about reorganizing uh, Deke International uh, around 1986. And in so doing, he drastically turned this remaining part of his old boss's empire around. Um, he expanded from 50 to 190 branches around the world and increased revenue to $2.5 billion before divesting to North American life in 1990. For years, Coleman conducted his own private investigation into the Deke killing. And as with almost everyone else close to the case, he never really bought the Lone Nut theory either. Um, he chased leads and Deke's missing millions all over the world. Uh, the entire structure of the company, in keeping with this kind of thing, kind of similar to Robert Maxwell, the layout of it was only the entire layout of it was only really known to Nicholas Deke. So when he died, there were suspicions that there were tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions of dollars squirreled away all over the place. Coleman learned that just after Deke had filed for bankruptcy, the branch office manager in Macau had disappeared without trace. Uh, Coleman got a plane over there to talk to the missing man's fiance. And she told him a very strange story. Uh, just after Deke had been murdered, she arrived in the office one day uh, to finish clearing out her fiancé's desk. And in one of the drawers, she found a photograph and she gave this photograph to Coleman. It was one of the ones that Lois Lang had taken that showed Deke lying unconscious on his office floor with, you know, a gory gunshot wound in his chest. How it found its way to the desk of a missing branch office manager in Macau has never been explained. 
Coleman would go on to fill filing cabinets with all the secrets and investigative leads he uncovered. Uh, his plan is to eventually write a tell-all book about it, uh, but he's still apparently waiting for certain key players to die before he publishes it. Now, despite her obvious mental illness, Lang was found fit to stand trial in 1993 as she was convicted of second-degree murder. She was sent to Bedford Hills Prison and consistently refused to speak to journalists. So while I was, you know, putting this together, this show, I was kind of lost in this murky head maze of spooks and MK Ultra and high finance and drug money. I kept thinking about how we've previously discussed the idea of the CIA as organized crime, you know. The deeper you get into the extent of their activities, the more you realize how correct Douglas Valentine was about that. We've said before that, you know, the life of a spook, the life of a mafioso, are quite eerily similar. You know, you move in a shadowy world of secrets with an entirely different moral framework. And once you're in, you can never really leave, you know. I was also thinking about that Henry Hill quote too, the one from Goodfellas. If you're part of a crew, nobody ever tells you that they're going to kill you. Doesn't happen that way. There aren't any arguments or curses like in the movies. So your murderers come with smiles. They come as your friends, the people who have cared for you all of your life, and they always seem to come at a time when you're at your weakest and most in need of their help. Sometimes that does apply. But sometimes, like in Nicholas Deke's case, your killers don't really come at you that way at all. They come to you as sad and broken people who somehow fell through every safety net that society is supposed to have in place to protect them. And they're scooped off the street and maybe they're fed drugs and dark ideas by strange men who are always lurking just out of sight. And they kept on retainer by people whose names they don't know for reasons they themselves can't and won't ever understand. And they're steered and puppeteered until an opportune moment presents itself and then they're activated. Sometimes they don't come to you with smiles. Sometimes they come at you in rags with tales of how the sky is falling in and a head full of weird spells cast in research labs and state facilities. And then they pull the trigger. Don't sing if you want to live long. They have no use for your song. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead. You're dead and out of this world. You'll never get a second chance Plan all your moves in advance Stay dead, stay dead, stay dead Stay dead and out of this world Run fast, don't stand in the fire There's too much work to be done You're down, you're down, you're down You're down and out of this world
talk with your 